There used to be a time when bounty hunters were burly guys whose job it was to apprehend fugitives, often using brute force, in order to get the reward or bounty being offered for their capture. It was something straight out of the Wild West. While bounty hunters still exist these days, the majority of them aren't gun-toting vigilante types, they're hackers. And instead of going after outlaws, they spend their time finding and reporting and getting paid for bugs that allow a real bad guy to exploit a company's vulnerabilities. Today on our show, we're talking about bug bounties, why they're important for keeping your business secure, and how to get them right. I'm John Pryle. Welcome to the Impact Podcast. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for everyone. Hi, my name is Katie Masuris. I'm the former Chief Policy Officer for HackerOne, and now I've started my own company that helps organizations and governments get better at working with hackers on vulnerability disclosure and potentially bug bounty programs. Now, let me jump in here for a second. The company that Katie's talking about is called Luta Security, and Katie's got quite a track record of success getting her to where she is today. So, Katie, let me start with current events and, and some congratulations. Uh, the DOD just published its summary of the Hack the Pentagon program, which you designed. Uh, five public-facing websites, 138 valid bug reports in about a month. Not bad. So, so what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, number one, it was uh, better than expected results for the Department of Defense on Hack the Pentagon. Um, not only were a number of security issues discovered and fixed in real time, but also um, just the change in attitude and the willingness to work with hackers. This is a historic moment. I mean, before this program, there was no legal way for a helpful hacker to report a security vulnerability in those websites to the U.S. government even if they meant well. And um, by creating this program and then the announcement that they are going to continue to expand those programs and create an ongoing legal avenue for helpful hackers to report those vulnerabilities, that just says so much about how far we've come in the last 35 years in computing. And what's interesting is when I was looking at it, I think the biggest difference as a government from an enterprise is now that people are cons should have no fear of submitting bugs in terms of future prosecution. Uh, how else do you see the government differ from enterprises? Well, the differences are not so much uh, along the lines of government versus private organization um, in terms of legality of reporting security issues. Um, it's really uh, the biggest differentiators between organizations are really around size and complexity of what it is that's exposed, um, exposed to the internet, or in terms of software manufacturers or IoT vendors, what is out there to be hacked. And so governments share characteristics with many large organizations in that they have large complex deployments, they have a lot of assets to protect, and they have a lot of attack surface area. And so wading into a bug bounty um, in exactly the way that the US government did, which is to peel off a particular section to focus on first and kind of oil the machinery behind that bug bounty program is really, you know, it's the recommended way for any organization to kind of get into dealing with the hacker community, whether you offer a bug bounty or not. Neat. Now, Microsoft just wrote a $50,000 check to this Tencent director of security. It's a 20, if I read this right, it's a 20-year-old bug, bad tunnel. C can you help me understand a little bit of definitional work? It, it, is that still, because it's 20 years old, is that still a zero-day vulnerability bug? I think my audience might get confused on some of this. 
Well, you know, it is certainly uh, unfortunate when bugs are uncovered that are nearly old enough to drink in the United States. Um, so that's too bad when that happens. Um, however, um, you know, I haven't looked into that particular issue. However, um, those bug bounty programs, which I actually launched at Microsoft originally, I launched the original uh, Microsoft bug bounty programs, those are designed to not just clean up some old bugs, but really they're designed to help Microsoft understand where it can improve its security in the future. The way that I structured those vulnerability, um, you know, those bug bounty programs was really along the lines of getting the individual bugs to Microsoft as early as possible. So for example, uh, doing a bug bounty during the beta period of some software, and also along the lines of looking at new attack techniques and trying to understand those techniques the idea there is that Microsoft needs to, to uh, use that information to try and eliminate entire classes of attack as opposed to focusing on individual bugs for each one. So I think what's really important for large complex organizations is there are many different ways to structure these incentives and looking at what is the most important thing for you as an organization to learn about. Um, certainly cleaning up old bugs is one thing and, and the fact that this one went almost you know, to, to the drinking age is too bad, um, but it's important to get those out of the ecosystem, and it's even more important to learn from, learn from the bugs that are reported so that you can make your software more secure in the future. So let's step back a little bit, talk about the broader vulnerability landscape. Not everybody is ready for bug bounties, or, or are they? And, and talk a little bit of that versus some basic hygiene that might be required. Before an organization can really consider a bug bounty program or a vulnerability disclosure program, they really have to take a look at their organizational capabilities. Um, and those organizational capabilities might include things like uh, engineering capabilities to triage and assess the severity of the issues, but also uh, the engineering capabilities to fix the issues. So there is a balance to be struck between uh, the engineering efforts that it takes to address security vulnerabilities and the engineering efforts that it takes to actually build uh, your services and your products. And so that needs to be taken into account when you're preparing for either a bug bounty program or a vulnerability disclosure program. But I think that organizations can, um, you know, can very quickly get into doing at least vulnerability disclosure um, without bounties fairly quickly and build up their organizational muscles to be able to handle more advanced incentive programs for vulnerable disclosure like bug bounties. I was, I was great. It was fascinating to me. And I love the fact that Hacker One was actually free for managing the vulnerability disclosures. And then later they'd be evolved and upselling into the, 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 more full, the richer bug bounty program. Oh, well, actually, uh, the platform was free, and that was basically to support people self-managing their own bug bounty programs. And then uh, what the what the model was before was the platform was free, and they just took a cut of bounty payments if people were paying bounties. Now, how different than do you see issues of, of, uh, of larger enterprises versus smaller startups? Well, you know, larger enterprises might have an advantage of having uh, more resources to put towards the problem. However, smaller startups have this advantage of usually not having a very aged code base or a very complex deployment environment, and they can move very quickly. So both both types of organizations, you know, tend to bring their own set of advantages to the problem of vulnerability disclosure. And how about industries? Do you see differences between industries, healthcare and fintech versus commerce or 
Well, I think the typical technology companies, you know, either software companies or just companies that are used to doing services over the internet are different from a lot of what we see as the IoT vendors. And that can be, you know, just because the IoT vendors are looking at the problem from functionality of their device. And, you know, you could count mobile phones in in the first wave of IoT and you can count uh, automobiles as maybe in this mm-hmm. la- this latter wave um, of IoT. It's essentially there's technology, it's connected to the internet um, or connected somehow, and it's now in devices and, and things that it never was before. And those organizations typically haven't thought of themselves as software companies or companies that integrate software components and therefore companies that will have to respond to security vulnerabilities in software up until recently. So I think that's been a big eye-awakening moment. Um, You also see organizations like the FDA, you mentioned medical devices, issuing post-market security guidance that includes telling medical device manufacturers that they should have a way to respond to vulnerability reports. Um, And there are ISO standards for uh, vulnerability disclosure. Um, The one uh, that I've worked on, ISO 29147, is now available for free um, to download from ISO. And that's the kind of guidance that agencies like FDA and FTC are recommending to businesses, medical device manufacturers, healthcare organizations. And I think that you're going to see a whole lot more of that type of recommendation coming from government regulators to these industries. Will that address an issue? These medical devices come out, they could be in the market for uh, five, 10 years. Uh, and as these bugs come along, what, what do you think the implications are of that in terms of vulnerabilities on these devices? And maybe they need to be replaced or recalled or you know, what, what are your thoughts on how that's going to evolve? Well, you know, um, a lot of discussion is going on right now, not just in terms of medical devices, but any devices that are deployed out in the field that run code, that they would have to have a better answer in terms of field upgradability. And that could be to address functional issues, but certainly very important to address security issues. If you look at car manufacturers... You see Tesla has over-the-air updates that are built in, um, and so they're capable of pushing patches without doing a recall necessarily. They can they can do this uh, over-the-air uh, for their users, for their customers, whereas traditional car manufacturers do not yet have that capability. So when we think about um, servicing all of these IoT items, uh, field upgradability is going to be a very important part of, of that security picture. Yet that's also another surface area to attack at the same time. Absolutely, um, especially for those vendors who have never done such a thing before, um, l- trying not to make the same mistakes of organizations in the past, such as failing to authenticate or sign their updates or failing to deliver them over a verifiable channel. Um, that would be a huge security hole in terms of uh, providing that field upgradability, but potentially allowing it as an avenue for attackers. That kind of guidance is actually in the ISO standard to make sure that organizations do not overlook those steps. So I'll put your consulting hat on. You know, one key element of good consulting is obviously providing baselines, and that often gets done with, with maturity models. And in the security space, there are so many different maturity models and BSIM or Prisma and these there's a security threat and vulnerable vulnerability management one I found. And of course you've got one that you put out, the vulnerability coordination maturity model, which I find so interesting because 
you get people to fess up. And I think that's really important. Can, can you shed your, some light on the differences and, and again, how people should begin to focus on things? Well, yeah, the vulnerability coordination maturity model is actually my my own, um, you know, my own creation that I had brought with me as my intellectual property um, to my last organization. And it's one that I'm going to continue to develop. And it's really, you're right, it's designed to provide a baseline and then a gap analysis and ideally a roadmap in how to build some of these capability areas that will well position organizations to handle vulnerability reports. Um, it was inspired by BSIM and some of the other ones. Um, so we'll be doing some work on that and, and releasing an updated version sometime later this year. But I think it's important for organizations to take a look at what do they have now, where do they want to go, and an easy roadmap to get there. And what level in the organization sh should that be at a VP engineering level? Should a CEO be asking about things like this? How high should this go? Well, the gap analysis that I've done for my customers so far actually is most successful when it involves um, heavy involvement with the executive team. So essentially the CEO on down, um, you know, putting their blessing on uh, assessing these capabilities and actually empowering their, you know, senior leadership team to not only answer, you know, all of the questions and take a good look at what they're doing now, but empowering them to make the incremental changes it would take to get better. Um, more detailed in terms of getting, you know, the information itself, uh, depending on the size of the organization, may go down to sort of the, the line engineer level of how they're doing, you know, how they're handling incoming, uh, you know, vulnerability reports now might get down to that level. But really, success is determined by executive buy-in and executive empowerment to get better. And when you're talking with CEOs, how do you get them to understand that, you know, they're playing defense, there's an offensive team out there, perhaps a nasty offensive team that that's trying to win and, and may always win over a good defense? Uh, how do you have those conversations and tell them the kind of the world they're in? Well, luckily or unluckily, um, the executives that have that I've been in contact with, they've reached out to me because they already know that they are under attack and they might just not be getting the report. Um, that is a great quote by the great Zane Lackey. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially, if you're on the Internet, you are under attack and you just might not be getting the report. So the execs are very aware. Also, you know, the headlines and the breaches that keep happening are raising awareness of not just the executives in these organizations, but also their customers and their customers are asking them, you know, are you prepared for this? What are you doing in terms of securing my data or these services that I use from you? And they're asking, you know, those executives to answer those questions. And this is a part of, of that answer is vulnerability coordination capability. Now, in terms of best practices for an engineering team, you know, I started as a developer and there were separate teams for testing versus development. But now we've got this with these bugs here. Should, should there be a separate fix it team, perhaps? Or does it get rolled into development? Obviously, developers like to write new code and add new functionality versus fixing bugs. What do you see for best practices within this space? Well, there's been a lot of, you know, the the traditional development houses, you know, that will use waterfall method. A lot of them, uh, the smaller teams and the newer teams are developing, you know, using agile methodologies. And then you've got sort of the, the hybrid uh, DevOps teams and you've got, you know, sort of the operational security and the development of the, the tools and, and the software itself um, sitting in one team. And so you see all these different models evolving, um, but ultimately, as long as as, you know, 
whomever is is deciding on how to remediate a vulnerability is actually able to get those remediations out to the field, whether it's out to customers or, you know, updated on your own servers and software. If you're, you know, if you're the ones who have the vulnerability in your own infrastructure, it's that communication path between getting it fixed and getting it deployed that seems to be crucial for all organizations. As part of that, is there an element of assigning risk scores and even making a business case on what gets focused on first? Is, is it okay to ignore anything or does everything have to get worked on? Well, it's not okay to ignore anything, but it is important to prioritize your fixes. I mean, you know, having worked at Microsoft for so long, you know, Microsoft was probably the organization worldwide that I would say uh, receives the most potential vulnerability reports and has to kind of take that broad funnel and narrow it down and prioritize it. And at any given time, an organization might have, you know, several, uh, if not many, many uh, severe or critical vulnerabilities in the queue. And there are different factors that that they should be um, looking at in terms of prioritizing which of those critical vulnerabilities to fix first. Um, the lower severity vulnerabilities, obviously, you know, you'll deprioritize those, but tracking them and making sure that they do either get some resolution or at least a decision about whether or not they will be fixed is important. Ignoring vulnerability reports and not categorizing them is, uh, even if they're you know felt to be lower severity, is not really a good practice. And in fact, we've also seen lower severity issues being combined with other lower severity issues in order to create an overall critical compromise type of vulnerability. So it's really important to track, track everything um, and make decisions about everything, even if the decision happens to be that you won't fix it. So just as we kind of look forward into the future, let's talk a little bit about incentives and, and what success might be for a bug bounty program one year out, two years out. Do you, is the definition of success or maybe your prediction for the future, we might be paying future fewer bounties in the future, but paying higher costs because they're more severe? Uh, where do you see this going as this program really just picks up a continued head of steam? Well, you know, I love the alliteration of the term bug bounty, but it's also misleading. Um, I look at bounties as incentives, and you don't have to bounty just bugs. So you could look at the trends of individual bugs in a traditional bug bounty, you know, one bug, one bounty. But you can also look at different incentives. And what I see as evolution and success in a program is an organization going from buying particular bugs to then evolving its own secure development practices or secure deployment practices if it's uh, you know just deploying the software such that it's then looking to provide incentives for different things than just bugs. It's gotten better at its own hygiene, and it's looking to uh, get reports for entire classes of vulnerabilities, um, looking to find the next generation of defenders that can help think of defenses against certain types of attacks, and looking at more and more complex things to put an incentive or a bounty out on that might not be just individual bugs. Um, in terms of bug prices, that question gets, I, I get asked that question a lot in terms of, you know, how high should we think of going and, and how are we ever going to outbid the bad guys, you know, the folks who are buying uh, bugs in order to exploit them. And my answer to that is, you know, the defense market for bugs has a logical ceiling. 
And that logical ceiling is pretty much at the point that you think uh, you'd be able to keep your own engineers and developers and testers sitting in their seats in your organization mm-hmm. versus just leaving and going and hunting bugs for you externally full time. So there's a sweet spot there for everyone. Interesting. Now, in terms of the the technical chops of these white hat hackers that are out there, are they the best ones to find these bugs or are we into a volume play more of, you know, quantity over quality? What do you think you've got out there in terms of the, the hackers that are helping? Well, there's, um, there's, it's more along lines of dividing around skill sets required for web type of vulnerabilities versus non-web type of vulnerabilities. So um, it's actually fairly low bar to entry, low barrier to entry skill-wise to start finding security vulnerabilities in web properties. So things like cross-site scripting and SQL injection, um, that skill set has a whole bunch of hackers who are able to find those types of bugs. They're also the types of bugs that are best suited to be found, not just by researchers or, or hackers, but also a lot of scanning tools are capable of finding those. So it kind of depends on where you want to put your investment if you're primarily looking at looking for website vulnerabilities. Non-web vulnerabilities, so things in hardware or firmware, things that are in custom, you know, client-side software that would be installed in your customer base and specialized code that you're writing that that is more complex than your average web services, that has a much smaller group of hackers that are able to find those things. And crowdsourcing for that skill set is actually pretty interesting because these folks who can find those types of bugs that are harder to find, they're in high demand. And so using a bug bounty program, um, an incentive program to try and identify those people is actually quite an interesting way to introduce yourself to new talent that you might want to hire full time, you might want to get under contract full time. I mean, it's a really good method to identify those highly skilled folks. So a quick one to close this up. What I know everything's always custom, but what might be a typical consulting engagement you'll have now? Well, I'm picking certain consulting engagements um, very deliberately, uh, and I, I do them based on, you know, kind of customer profile and the the business vertical or the general vertical that I want to open up to this idea. Um, because ideally, I'm looking for people who are interested in doing this, um, who want to get better, and who are looking at expanding their capability areas. So, you know, governments are a a key uh, component to to my client base, um, because as we saw, the U.S. government has been wildly successful. And I think that that is a lather, rinse, repeat for governments of the world who care about, um, who care about the security of their, uh, you know, critical infrastructure and their own services. And and also, you know, other clients would be clients who are in specific verticals, but the one common thread among all of them is that they've identified that they know they need to build capacity in vulnerability disclosure. They want to get better um, and they want a person with experience to come in and help them do that gap analysis and help them formulate their plans to move forward. Katie Misouris, thank you so much for giving us the time today. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 